Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Thank you, Tim. And it's great to be here at First Alliance. I have a lot of good memories uh, from my association back when I was a youth pastor years and years ago. Uh, doing combined youth events, and then as a pastor at Ritz and Road Alliance Church for 16 years in Oshawa, and uh, the last 12 plus years or so as a military chaplain working full-time. Uh, and yes, I did go to school with Pastor Tim and Pastor Andrew. Uh, I was the old guy, and uh, we shared a number of courses, um, and I resolved I wasn't going to tell stories this morning, but I will tell you this. The one thing that impressed me from both these young men Uh, was the depth and the knowledge and the maturity, uh, their passion to serve, their calling, and uh, Tim's energy (laughs) and enthusiasm, especially on an after day in a a course where we all could have used coffee. Uh, Pastor Andrew, um, the depth of his ability to think critically and wrestle and process scripture And I can tell you there was one course that we shared. uh, It was a preparatory course for our thesis. Uh, We both wrote thesis. And uh, I thought, man, I am way over my head here. What am I doing? Uh, And I learned so much from him uh, from that course. So great to be here and to share with you this morning. Uh, And yes, I was a military chaplain. uh, Part-time for 20, uh, well, in total 25 years. Uh, Half of that was about part-time while I was still pastoring a church. The chaplaincy was my outreach ministry into our community in Oshawa, and then when I left the church in 2007, my ministry shifted and it became full-time, working full-time with the Canadian Armed Forces. And so in 2010, I deployed to Afghanistan as military chaplain. A month later, not far from our... uh, not far from one of our forward operating bases, one of our military convoys um, was traveling. The vehicle that served as the field ambulance struck an improvised explosive device and killed two of our our medical technicians and injuring a third. At the time, I was providing chaplain support to the provincial reconstruction team in the city of Kandahar. I received a call from my supervisor uh, directing me to get out to that fob as soon as possible. Well, in a war zone, there's no such thing as a regular 8 a.m. flight. Everything's irregular for obvious reasons. And as it was, it took several days before I could travel from Kandahar City out into the countryside to where our, our soldiers were serving at this forward operating base. I'll never forget when I arrived, I was greeted by uh, the warrant officer who was a senior medical uh, personnel on the ground, and he simply came up to me and he asked me, uh, Padre, are you ready to do your thing? And I wasn't quite sure what that meant. But as we walked up to the unit medical services tent, there was a lineup of medical technicians. They had already predetermined who I was going to talk to and when I was going to talk to them. I was directed around behind the medical services tent. There was a picnic table there. A medical technician was sitting there. I sat down across from them, and it was just like two laser beams, their eyes drilling right through my chest. The first thing that came out of this person's mouth was simply this, what the hell took you so long to get here? How do you respond to something like that? I wasn't sure what to say, so I pulled up my best doctor, Phil, and said, so tell me, how are you feeling? (laughs) 
right? More colorful metaphors. And what do you think I was supposed to feel? And in that moment, feeling so out of my grasp, out of my field, out of my depth, I can tell you it must have only been a God-inspired thought that crossed my mind, and I said to the person, what's your anger meter registering these days? And the response was instantaneous. Padre, it was off the scale. Do you know that I had to go back out there that afternoon, and I had to go back out there the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that, and all I wanted was to see some Afghan holding an AK-47 so I could blow off their head. The pain and the emotion was so raw and so real and so intense. I said, you know something, if you weren't angry, I'd be concerned. And they looked at me like I had three heads. I said, yes. I said, if you didn't feel as strongly as you do, I would be more concerned because we have a label for people who don't feel. We have a label for people who don't feel loss and grief and remorse. And the fact that your anger is so intense and so powerful and so painful tells me just how much you cared for your friends. And it was like a floodgate opened up. The dam burst and the tears just began to pour down their face and mine. The body language began to relax. The conversation became less combative. And we started to pick up the pieces of their broken world and work through a process of grieving. Friends, war is a terrible thing. It's not fair. And at times, it's very indiscriminate. It wasn't fair. Why their peers? Why their comrades? Why their friends? I can tell you, you don't have to be a soldier to have a keen sense of justice, or better yet, injustice. As Pastor Andrew has shared over the last several weeks, all of us have this inner sense that when a wrong's been committed, it needs to be made right. We know that we live in a broken world, a world where hardship and suffering and sickness and poverty and discrimination are much more prevalent than anything we might understand as the Canadian or the American dream. Even the Apostle Paul recognized it when he wrote to Romans in 8.28, recognizing and emphasizing that even creation is groaning under the consequences of a fallen and sinful humanity. What's your anger meter registering at these days? What's setting it off? Are you angered by an injustice that you've experienced or you've been the recipient of? Are you angered by the degree of injustice that we see so prevalent in our world? Or has it all in this last year and a half just become so overwhelming that you've become indifferent to it all? I had a colleague who used to say to me, Al, hey Al, don't get stressed, man. When things were out of control, and there was nothing we can do. Hey, remember, not my circus, not my monkeys. As our son moved from infancy to toddlerhood and later childhood, there was indications that something was off. He was very obsessive compulsive. Now that may be quite normal for some two-year-olds, three-year-olds, but there were other issues that became more prevalent, especially as he started public school. 
The teachers made us aware of it and basically said, you need to have your son assessed, Mr. Nickel. What does that mean? Well, over time, we discovered that he was diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome, a neurological disorder characterized by repetitive, sudden, and often involuntary movements called tics. There are two categories. There are motor tics, right? Our son had motor tics. They were tactile. He, at times, he needed to smell or to sniff, and he'd come up and, you know, grab your shirt, and he'd sniff, right, or touch, right? Needed to do that, a motor tick. And while he was at school, he would spend an inordinate amount of time and energy trying to control these urges. But soon as he walked home and got through the front door where it was safe, right? Whoa, everything would let loose. And not only did he have motor tics as a young child, but there were also vocal tics. Some of you may have be familiar. You know someone with Tourette's who's done there, has motor or vocal tics. Uh, they grunt, they can grunt. There's grunt sounds or voice clearing, <clears throat> right? Or in our case, what is often associated with the stereotyped Tourette's, the swearing disorder, also called coprolalia. Now, unlike soldiers who use colorful metaphors to punctuate and emphasize, most Tourette's, well, it just comes out. And it often came out at the worst times, often at the supper table, which could often be quite chaotic. And sometimes it would just come out and it would be random thoughts. And, and to be honest, it was actually quite funny. <laughs> and, and we'd sit there and we'd start laughing and then that made it worse for him and then it got worse, right? And it, and it went on. And as he grew, as he progressed through high school, as he got older, there were, there were layers, literally layers upon layers of other issues that were identified. And now he's, he's 28. He's an amazing kid. But as a parent, how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile having a child with a disability? As a pastor, how was I to reconcile that? Oh God, my son, why me? Haven't I given you up, given up so much already to serve you? I can tell you that beneath that nice pastoral surface at times there flowed a river of resentment and, and bitterness and anger and at times fear and embarrassment. Oh God, what's gonna happen if he lets loose in church, right? And how many times did I ask that why question? Why? And, and why is it so hard to get support? And why is it so hard to get funding? And why is our mental health system so broken? Why, why, why? Well, this morning, it's not so much my intent to share with you a theology of disability as it is to share some of my journey with you and the process that I continue to work through in trying to find a sense of justice in the face of disability. And I ask, is it possible? The simple answer to that question is yes, absolutely. It is possible, and I want to share, with that, share that with you this morning.
First and foremost, though, I believe that we can experience justice in the face of disability when we reject the labels and limits of our culture. I'll explain further. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to it. Maybe it's a Bible in the pew rack, or if you have your PDA with you, or your electronic reader. Um, bring up John chapter 5, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You'll find it near the beginning of the New Testament. We want to take a look at that this morning. I want to provide some context, context for you first. Here we learn that Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's on his way to one of the Jewish feasts. We're not told which one, but there were three big ones, all male Jews living within proximity of Jerusalem, basically were required to attend. And they were, of course, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So it may well have been that he was on his way up to the temple for part of worship or celebration, uh, hence the reference to the Sheep Gate. Right? The gate through which the sheep would have been herded on their way to the temple as sacrifices. We know that located near this gate was the pool of Bethesda, translated from Aramaic as the house of mercy. Some of your translations may also say Bethasa, which is, also tra- which is translated house of olives, which also would have been correct because the pool of Bethesda was located in the quarter of Jerusalem known as Bethsatha. Archaeologists actually tell us and actually informed us back in the 1800s that this pool existed because they excavated it and they found it beneath a Byzantine church. And just to give you an idea of its size, consider putting together two Olympic-sized swimming pools side by side because there were actually two pools. There was a north pool, a south pool, a partition down the middle, and that's why there were five covered colonnades, right? Colonnade down the middle, around the outside, around the exterior, basically pillars, right, with a a roof on top, or think perhaps of your patio and the pergola that you got up there, or an awning. It would have been a place where there would have been refuge from the heat of the day for those who were there. But if it was two Olympic-sized swimming pools, that could probably accommodate a lot of people. Well, we discover here that Jesus encounters a PWD, right? A person with a disability. The New International Version translates this as one who had been an invalid for 38 years. The term is actually quite general. It could be a reference to human weakness, to sickness, to some sort of an ailment. It doesn't say specifically what it is, but what is unique about this context is that he had been suffering from this for some 38 years. That's very unusual, especially in that culture in that time. If he had contracted this as a child or pre-adolescent or adolescent, that might have put him in his 40s or his 50s, which would have been well beyond the life expectancy of anybody who had encountered something like this. Now, we also don't know how long he had been at the pool, but we do know that he was incapable of getting into the water by himself, and nor was there anyone there to help him when the water stirred and healing was, quote, accessible. In other words, he was powerless. And it may have been for this reason that among the multitude, Jesus singles him out. All right, so there's the context. Verse one, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish feasts. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, um, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Let me read that last bit again. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Did you catch the qualifier? Who was there? Wasn't Martha, wasn't Simeon, right? It wasn't a number. It was the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. 
Some things really haven't changed in 2,000 years because what do we do? We continue to put labels on people, right? We depersonalize them. Oh, it's the blind, it's the sick, right? We put a label on it. Our identity is attached to a label. My value is attached to my capability, right? I was a military chaplain. That was my, that was my, my job, my my position, I was a lieutenant colonel. Wow, who really cares? Wow, isn't that important? Tell my family that. They think it was Colonel Sanders selling fried chicken or something, right? Now, my identity is attached to my age. Oh, I'm a senior citizen. Well, maybe not quite there, but apparently I get a discount at Shoppers Drug Mart on Thursdays. <laughs> but what do we do? We attach our identity to all those things that are external. It could be the color of my skin. It could be my ethnicity. It could be my gender. It could be my, the language that I speak. It could be my faith tradition. It could be my philosophical out, uh, view on life. But it's also my ability, or more importantly, my disability that culture identifies me. The Ontario Human Rights Commission defines disability in the following way. Any degree of physical disability, infirmity, malformation, or disfigurement that is caused by bodily injury birth defect or illness. That's pretty wide open, isn't it? And then it lists a number of, of uh, descriptors or illnesses that we would say, yeah, that makes sense. It also says a disability could be a condition of mental impairment, developmental disabilities. It can also be a mental disorder. It can also be a learning disability or a dysfunction in one or more of the processes involved in understanding or using symbols or spoken language. Or then the, the catch-all, right, legislated, an injury or disability for which benefits were being claimed for. You're getting money for it? Well, you got a label. You got a disability, right? We formalize that. Now, don't get me wrong. I've also discovered that labels can be helpful sometimes, right? They, they can be helpful. They've, in our case, they've been helpful in that they've enabled us to access certain resources and certain funding and certain programs and certain expertise. But I've also learned that labels can be very, very destructive, right? They can hinder. They can limit. They can restrict, isolate, stereotype, stigmatize, injure, wound, discriminate, and victimize. Those who are labeled can be made to feel inferior, incapable, a liability, a hindrance. Our culture consistently associates our identity by all of those things which are so often external. But what does God do? He identifies us by that which is internal. He created my inmost being. He knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Friends, how empowering is that truth when you're wearing a label? It's amazing. I don't, I don't wear the label of disabled, but I do have a label as an illegitimate child. I was unplanned, I was inconvenient, unwelcomed, and given up at birth. What does Jesus do? 
Here's the amazing thing. He takes the labels of our culture and he redeems them and he transforms them and he reconciles them by his love and his grace. He pursues us. He seeks to enter into a relationship with us so that we might be free from those things. What does Jesus do? He learns this man's been in this condition for a long, long time, right? So he doesn't come up to him and go, oh, you must be the paralytic, right? No. He doesn't come up to him and go, oh, you know, entering into a theological discussion. I know why you're so messed up. There obviously must be sin in your life. Right? Wasn't that what Job experienced? He lost his health, his wealth, his family. His three friends come along and say, Job, just confess whatever you've done wrong. Right? And the disciples weren't immune from it either. You jump ahead to John chapter 9, the healing of the man born blind, it raised the same debate. The disciples said to Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? We don't have this time this morning to enter into a deep, long th- discussion of theology of suffering and why bad things happen to good people good people, but I can tell you that life is not black and white. Life is very gray, and that's why it takes faith and grace working together to work through some of this stuff. Well, maybe if you just repented, right? Instead of sitting around watching sheep herded into the temple, maybe if you actually got someone to get one of those sheep for you, take you up to the temple and do a sacrifice for you, everything would be okay. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He's not looking for the source. He's not looking for a reason. He's not looking for a purpose. Well, you know, maybe if you just had more faith, you just need to believe. You need to reframe your disability to see that God is using this for your benefit. He's melting and molding you and trying to build character. Are you kidding me? Nor does he even look at the broader context. You know what, brother, your problem is? You hang out with too many sick people. (laughs) Birds of a feather flock together. How badly do they want you to even get well? You get well and you're out of here. They're still stuck here. You know, maybe if you just dealt with your codependency issues, right? Got into a healthier community. No, no. Instead, what does Jesus do? He asks the man a very simple question. And certainly it wasn't one that I or Pastor Tim or Pastor Andrew were taught at seminary or any other school, but it was one that stripped away all the labels and limits this man would have been experiencing. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Bible scholar William Barclay wrote, the first essential towards receiving the power of Christ is the intense desire for it. Jesus comes to us and says, do you really want to change? If in our inmost hearts we are well content to stay as we are, there can be no change for us. The desire of better things must be surging in our hearts. You asked me this morning, is there justice in the face of disability? Absolutely, that justice is found in Jesus. It's found in Christ, who wants to do more than just transform a physical body that eventually will die and perish. He wants to transform our hearts. He's more interested in what is paralyzing our hearts than simply what is paralyzing our bodies. I tell you, the paralysis of bitterness or resentment or lust or pride or bitterness or self-reliance or an addictive behavior is much, much, much more destructive. 
Maybe it's our attitudes and perceptions that we encounter, uh, we experience when we encounter someone with a visible disability. Or maybe it's baggage we carry because of someone that we love or care for, i.e. my son has a disability. Or maybe it's because it's a disability that we wear ourselves. We wear a label and we have to deal with it every day. The wonderful good news of God's word is that our value is not determined by the label or limits that our culture places on us, but by the fact that we were created in the image of God, we were knit together in our mother's womb, whether it was planned by her or not. Jesus sees beyond the labels and the limits, and he comes looking for us. He pursues us. He reaches out to us, and he simply asks, do you want to get well? You're ready for some change. Here was a man who had been paralyzed for some 38 years. All he knew was sickness and paralysis, and yet Jesus went to the very heart of the issue. You sure you want to be well? Friends, we can experience justice in the face of disability when we reject the labels and limits of our culture and simply welcome that invitation by Jesus. Yes, Lord, I want my life to change. Secondly, we can experience justice in the face of disability when we receive and embrace the full love and grace of God. Sounds very simple. Let me make a couple observations about these verses here. Verses five through eight. Notice, first of all, that Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up. He shows up in the everyday of life. There was a routine and rhythm to Jewish life. Generally, it, it, it's centered around the temple, uh, in a sense, the liturgical year, the religious year, the festivals. And Jesus was part of everyday life. He was on his way to the temple for one of the festivals. Right? He showed up. He engaged. He engaged in the everyday, perhaps even in the monotony of life or the responsibilities of life. You know, it could have been that he could have walked right on by that pool that day, right? He was on his way up to the temple for that festival. Whoa, I'm late. Got to get going. Haven't got time to sightsee. Haven't got time to do any ministry today. No. Oh, not my ministry. <laughs> I think the father has an angel, doesn't he? He stirs the waters. No, what does Jesus do? He shows up. He shows up, and the man doesn't even recognize him. The man doesn't have a clue who's engaging him. I tell you, when I read that, and when I reflected on that this week, I thought, well, how many times has God showed up in my life, and I didn't recognize him? <laughs> how many times has the presence of God manifested itself and I wasn't even tracking. I didn't even get it because I was so focused on me and myself and my problems and my baggage. I missed it. But it doesn't end there. Jesus, not only does he show up, he shows compassion. He knows and sees us when we are utterly at our most helpless moment in life and he doesn't give up. Again, we don't have a diagnosis for this individual, but we know from experience, right, especially those of you who are aging, you know, you don't use it, you lose it. <laughs> Muscles start to atrophy. Things get stiff. Joints tighten up. Oh, that arthritis kicking in. It's raining out. Bad day. Right? He had no ability to get into the pool on his own. Total loss of range of motion. Right? Having created us and having died for us, Jesus continues to reach out. I love what the reformer John Calvin wrote. He said, the sick man does what we nearly all do. He limits God's help to his own ideas 
and does not dare promise himself more than he conceives in his mind. God wants to do so much more in us and through us, but we, we limit him. Jesus shows up, he shows compassion, and he shows how well he knows us because he sees beyond our excuses. He engages the paralytic man, and the man replies, I have no one, no one to help me into the pool, right? Just little old me, right? Feeling sorry for himself. Uh, as parents, especially when our children were young, there were, in our household, times where timeouts were required. If you're a parent, I think you know what I'm talking about. Back in my day, it was usually the Board of Education applied to my seat of learning, but things changed with the times, thankfully. And for whatever reason, my daughter was having a timeout in her bedroom. Can't remember what the issue was, but we were out in the living room, and after a little while, we hear this little voice. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. They don't even want to look at me. Well, as a parent, what do you, what do, you do with that, right? <laughs> well, couldn't have been long after that, we hear another little voice, the voice of our son, who was two years younger. Nobody loves you. <laughs> Everybody hates you. <laughs> they don't even want to look at you. <laughs> but we feel like that, right? We feel unloved, we feel isolated, alone frustrated, disappointed, angry. And what does Jesus do? He shows up. He shows up. And he shows up with his word. We open his word, and what does he say to us? He says, Al, in spite of what you're feeling, in spite of what your circumstances are, don't forget, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. It's when you're weak that you're strong. Al, what are you doing with all this anxiety and worry? Cast all your care on me, all your anxiety on me because I care for you. Take my yoke upon you, right? My burden is light. You're feeling crushed. Or even as Paul shares with us, you know, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It will guard our hearts against things like fear, worry, anxiety. L, I've learned the secret of being content. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Wow. Or in this context, what were the words of Jesus? Get up! Get up, take up your mat, and walk. The real justice in the face of disability is God breaking into our lives and inviting us to get up and to let go of our spiritual paralysis and to walk with him. The most amazing part about this passage, and if there's anything you leave here, it's this. The paralytic didn't know who Jesus was, right? Didn't have a clue who he was. He didn't ask for any healing, and there was no demonstration of actual faith. Think of all the miracles in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where faith is referenced. Go, your faith has made you well. Nothing, absolutely nothing, and Jesus still heals him. That is the love and the grace of God. Cannot be earned, cannot be deserved, can't be merited, can't be impressed. We can experience justice in the face of disability when we receive and embrace the love and grace of God. Last point, 
We can experience justice in the face of disability when we relinquish living in the past. Verse nine, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, well, the the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Man, what a contrast. We have this vivid image of a man who was so physically paralyzed in comparison to a group of religious leaders who were so spiritually paralyzed, literally blinded by their own unbelief and their traditions and themselves. If you think about it, belief is a very common theme throughout the Gospel of John. You read the word believe more in John than in any other New Testament book, right? Believe. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever, what believes in him, right? These leaders who are so bound by their self-righteousness, their traditionalism, their legalism, they not only missed out on the work of God, they tried to rob this poor soul of the joy that he was experiencing now having been healed. They couldn't even celebrate the grace of God. No, they sat there and they had to criticize it. When, when Pastor Andrew introduced this series to us several weeks ago, he described how, how justice and righteousness are, are connected, right? Justice is always restorative in nature. It flows out of the nature and character of God. God's desire for relationship with us, right? Right relationship, righteousness, right living, how we can live in right relationship with God. And God has made that possible by his justice, exercising his justice, his son, Christ, dying on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, that we might experience that, that we might experience right relationship with God, right relationships and healthy relationships with one another, with creation itself, and even our own selves. Notice this, the paralytic's health is restored but it becomes evident as you finish this passage, right? Especially when Jesus later seeks him out of the temple that he didn't get it. He missed the whole point. He was still a paralytic. Think about it. He was still paralyzed spiritually. There was no relationship. There was no recognition of who Jesus was. There was no understanding of his sonship or his lordship. Jesus had said to him, get up. There's a call to change, right? Change your posture. Change your position in life. Pick up your mat. A call to a new direction. Hey, you're not sleeping here tonight. You're not coming back here tomorrow. There's something better ahead. And a call to walk. Wonderful Greek word, peripateo, to walk in relationship with God. Walk. Walk with me. Walk in a relationship with Jesus. To quit A call to quit living in the past. A call to quit living with excuses, to quit living with regret, to quit living with wishful thinking, a call to quit living within a dysfunctional community, right? When we encounter Jesus, when we encounter and experience his love and his grace, we experience a freedom from all that which would seek to paralyze us and rob us of God's joy and his peace. In, in 2019, I was invited by my chaplain supervisors to serve as a staff chaplain on what was called an international military pilgrimage uh, to a Roman Catholic holy site in Lourdes, France. 
Some of you may be familiar or have heard of, heard of Lourdes. It's a site where people apparently are healed. Following World War II, French soldiers and their chaplains invited German soldiers and their chaplains to gather at Lourdes in France for a time of prayer and reconciliation and, and healing. For over 60 years, there's a weekend in May, you can Google this, where this military pilgrimage takes place. Over 40 different military contingents uh, show up and arrive, dressed in all of our uniforms. We march through the town. We attend the various uh, ceremonies and services. What's significant, though, about this site, you may recall, is that Roman Catholics believe that on February 11, 1858, Bernadette Subaru, a 14-year-old single gal, had this vision or saw a vision of Mary. It was followed apparently by several more and a miracle in which water began to miraculously flow out of this grotto or this cave. And it was said that this water had healing properties and powers, able to restore physical and spiritual uh, strength to individuals. And of course we know that over the years, thousands upon thousands of people have have taken a pilgrimage to Lord's France in hope of receiving healing. Well, as a staff chaplain, we arrived a day early before our soldiers, uh, sailors, airmen and women, and we also had veterans, retirees, were arriving. And so we were getting situated with the local village, and we were walking through the town, and that was the cathedral, and that's the site where we'll be meeting tomorrow, and, and there's the baths. That's where the water comes out. And I will never forget the image that I saw. You know, we're familiar with the parking lot at Walmart, right? I see hundreds of cars parked at Walmart. We, we came down the hill. I, I, can't, I couldn't count the number of wheelchairs that were parked, stationed outside of this, this structure. And beside the wheelchairs, there was, there was row upon row upon row of, of, of litters, or, right? People laying out on these things that friends had brought them down. And then lineups of people like, w- way worse than Disneyland, if you've ever been to Disneyland. But I, it, it, was hard, it, it was hard to grasp just how desperate these people were for a plunge beneath these holy waters in hope of healing. Pure desperation. I wonder how desperate we are in our lives. Desperate for change, desperate to see Jesus walk into our lives, Or do we just want our circumstances to change? Do we just want something fixed? Do we just want that person that aggravates us royally fixed? Do we want that job to change? Do we just want money in that bank account? Is it just something like that? Or or do we want this to change? Real justice can be found in a personal relationship with Jesus who liberates us from the labels and the stereotypes placed upon us by our culture. Real justice can also be found in the love and grace of God that reaches out into our brokenness, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual, and speaks into our lives value and gives us a new identity and purpose and hope. Real justice is living freed from the anger and resentment and bitterness of the past, all those things that would seek to paralyze us. God hasn't promised. Sky's always blue, flowers strewn pathways all our lives through. He hasn't promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. He hasn't promised we shall not know many toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He hasn't told us we shall not bear many a burden or many a care. But, but 
God has promised strength for the day, rest for the laborer, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, and undying love. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.